We'll hear argument first this morning in Case 051541, E.C. Term of Years Trust versus United States. Mr. Ainsa. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the plain and unequivocal language of Section 1346 waives sovereign immunity and permits a refund suit by a third party such as petitioner. That conclusion that I have stated to the Court is supported by the holding in United States versus Williams. That case, as the Court well knows, dealt with a situation in which the government sought to recover money through a tax land as opposed to a tax levy, which is the situation in this case. However, there is no substantive difference between the — And why did the Court point out twice in Williams that uh, Section 7426 was not available? Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg Section 24, 7426 was not available in the case of Mrs. Williams. Because but there was no levy. It was only a lien. It was a, a lien case, and, of course, 7426 involves a levy. But nonetheless, the holding that I, that I have read in that case uh, very definitively deals with the breadth of Section 1346. And the breadth of Section 40, uh, 1346, according to the holding in, in United States versus Williams, is certainly broad enough to encompass a third party like petitioner. I do not view the fact that 7426 was not available to be a controlling issue, because the question was whether or not 1346 would permit a third party to bring a refund action, and that was the holding of the court as I read that opinion. But when Congress provides a special remedy for a particular class of persons, that special remedy usually excludes a more general provision. Justice Ginsburg, in, in the case of 7426, Congress never made that remedy expressly exclusive. Uh, the language, language is completely missing from that statute. And the argument was raised in United States versus Williams that if Section 1346 was made available to third parties like Mrs. Williams, it would render meaningless the short statute of limitations. 1346 offers only post-deprivation relief. Section 7426 offers both pre- and post-deprivation relief. So that the two statutes can live in harmony and can be uh, harmonized and should not be uh, held to have preempted one over the other when there is no express declaration from Congress making that the case. The government does cite the principle that when there's a specific statutory scheme, it controls over a more general one. Uh, it doesn't cite a tax case for that, at least as I recall. Is, is that uh, principle ever been applied in the tax code, you know? Uh, Justice Kennedy, I don't believe it's been applied in the tax code, but I can answer your question, I think, by saying this. Congress, on many instances, has made provisions of the United States Internal Revenue Code exclusive. Congress knows how to write those provisions into the tax code when it wants to do so. In this case, it was not done. And I'd also like to point out that after the decision in United States versus Williams, Congress amended 7426 to add a special provision. And in that special provision, it was made exclusive. And I use that to, to exemplify 
the fact that Congress can, when it wants to, make a tax provision exclusive. Still in all, we don't — we certainly don't want to uh, deprive any statutory provision of its whole purpose and effect. And as I understand the purpose of this especially short statute of limitations, it is to enable the government to dispose of the property that it has seized and to be able to give clear title to it without uh, somebody coming back, you know, many years later and, and saying this property should not have been taken. Uh, how is that purpose served if, uh, if indeed you can proceed under the provision that has a longer statute? Justice Scalia, 7426 has four different components. Um, two of the components are clearly pre-deprivation type remedies. They are the ability of a taxpayer or a third party to seek an, an injunction to prohibit the government from either selling property or conducting a levy. Those are clearly pre-deprivation. The other two are primarily post-deprivation remedies. And so the object that the government was trying to achieve can be achieved through looking at it from a pre-deprivation, post-deprivation analysis. I don't believe that the government's underlying purpose is in any way diminished when the two statutes can live in harmony. And without having an exclusivity provision expressly stated in 7426, and given the fact that 1346, on its face plainly, waives sovereign immunity for third parties to bring refund suits, the two statutes must be construed. But isn't there this difference between the two? One of them, you can, you're not challenging the amount of the tax in this case, are you? Your Honor, I'm sorry, I didn't understand your question. You're not challenging the amount of the assessed tax, are you? You're just whether they can collect it from this particular person. Petitioner is not challenging the underlying assessment against the taxpayer. And isn't that the basic difference between the two statutes, that one of them deals with a, a fight about how much money the taxpayer owes and the other one deals with the method of collection? 7426 clearly uh, prevents a, a person from contesting the underlying assessment, whereas in 1346 that is possible. But in this case, 1346 is broad enough because it uses the term collected. And, and just like in Williams, we are not seeking to contest the underlying assessment. But it does seem to me, if you think of the two statutes as performing rather separate functions, one primarily focused at the method of collection, the other the amount of tax, makes quite good sense to have different statute limitations for the two, because there is an interest in a prompt resolution of the former issue that doesn't apply to the latter. Justice Stevens, there is certainly the government has demonstrated by, or Congress has demonstrated by passing 7426, there's an interest in a short, shorter statute of limitations in certain cases. However, I, I return to my, my original argument that if 1346 is broad enough to encompass third-party <laughs> refund suits, and if Congress has not made 7426 exclusive, the two statutes should be allowed to coexist. This Court has held on other occasions that it will not preempt statutes without a very clear expression from Congress. And Congress, once again, knew how to do it after the Williams case. Well, well I suppose, and you tell me if I'm wrong, or the government will tell me if I'm wrong, that there is this difference also that in a refund suit you have to pay the money. The government has the money before you can bring the refund suit. Am I right about that? That is correct. But incidentally, I'm just curious. Uh, if the underlying assessment, if you wish to challenge the underlying assessment, uh, is for a million dollars. Can you pay a hundred thousand dollars in, in 
then bring the refund suit in order to test the validity of the tax? Or do you have to pay the whole amount? The whole amount. What about the underlying principle that waivers of sovereign immunity are strictly construed? I know you have a waiver in the broader statute, but shouldn't you read them together with the specific to suggest that they weren't waiving sovereign immunity when a more specific statute governed, except to the extent of the provisions in that more specific statute? Mr. Chief Justice, when I read the opinion in United States versus Williams, uh, the Nordic case was, was brought up by the dissent in that case, that there must be an absolutely unequivocal waiver of sovereign immunity in order to allow a particular suit against the United States. The holding in United States versus Williams was that 1346 was sufficiently broad. And given that holding and given the fact that the government was asserting that Mrs. Williams had other remedies in the form of a quiet title action, um, a refund action. The court took uh, care to point out why those were not realistic remedies. But here there is a prompt and efficient remedy. Justice Ginsburg, there is another remedy, which is certainly governed by a much shorter statute of limitations. But in my view, the, the equities or the facts of the case should not drive the construction of the statute any more than it did in United States versus Williams. And if 1346 is broad enough to encompass a third-party case in the instance of a lien, it is broad enough to encompass it in the case of a levy. There is no functional substantive difference between money taken from a, from a third party via a lien or via a levy. Well, well your argument is, is, is proper based on the statute. I, I, I just question one, one phrase you mentioned, which was that uh, Williams was not driven by the equities. It seems to me it was wholly driven by the equities. Justice Kennedy, as I read the holding in United States versus Williams, the court found that there was an unequivocal waiver of sovereign immunity in Section 1346 and observed afterwards that a person like Mrs. Williams did not have a, a meaningful remedy. I did not read that to be that the construction of the statute was driven by the equities. It was an observation after the fact. It was a determination that the word taxpayer encompassed someone who had, in fact, paid the tax. Here you don't even have that because the tax wasn't paid directly by the EC Trust. The trust uh, deposited the money in the bank, and then the government levied on it, as distinguished from Williams, where Mrs. Williams, in fact, wrote a check to the Internal Revenue Service covering her husband's tax liability. Justice Ginsburg, I, I believe that both uh, Mrs. Williams and the trust are in the same position. Both of them paid the tax. Both were third parties. Neither was a taxpayer. In the case of Williams, the taxpayer was her husband. In the case of Well, the, the whole trust, case was about whether she indeed qualified as a taxpayer, having voluntarily paid the tax. In this case, the, the levy was an involuntary act on, on the part of uh, the, the government to take the money from E.C. Trust, from the deposit that yes, was put it up. Yes, it was an involuntary act, whereas in Williams, she stepped forward and paid the tax and, and claimed on 
that basis that she was the taxpayer? Justice Ginsburg, the the situation in Williams, however, involved a tax lien. Mrs. Williams would not have paid the tax had the government not asserted a tax lien and forced her to pay the tax out of the proceeds of the house when it was sold. It was no more voluntary than a levy in the sense that I'm talking about. Well, why isn't the obvious difference? I may have missed this, but uh, you say, look, in the, in the case, a taxpayer owed some money and the government, via a lien, took property from a different person who then had to pay the tax to get rid of the lien and wanted it back. And in this case, they did exactly the same thing, but they did it via a levy. So you say if the first could sue, so could the second. But the difference would ob- the obvious difference, which maybe you've explained and I missed, is that in the second case, namely this case, there's a specific statute that says you have to do it with a levy in nine months. And in the other case, there wasn't such a statute. Why isn't that the obvious difference? Justice Breyer, it, the answer is because 1346 also permits a third party to bring a refund action. Uh, it is not restricted, even though there is a specific statute dealing with levies, 1346 was held to be broad enough to, en- to encompass a It encompasses a, refund a lien for a refund action in the case where you took the property via a lien. And you'd say, they say, I guess, but it doesn't encompass it when you take it via a levy. Why not? Because there's a specific, the same thing I just said. Now, what's the, I want to be sure I have your whole answer to that. My answer to that is that there is no substantive distinction between a levy and a lien, and that while Williams dealt with a lien, and I fully understand that, the taking by the government was just as involuntary under the levy as it is with a lien. And once Section 1346 is deemed to be broad enough or held to be broad enough to encompass a refund action, it should encompass an action by the levy. Essentially, I'm arguing that the two statutes can coexist together and should coexist together in the absence of a clear declaration from Congress that 7426 is exclusive. I can support my argument by the fact that after Williams, Congress did make, did amend 7426 and did make a specific new remedy in their exclusive. Congress could have done that at the time 7426 was originally enacted in 1966, but did not do so. If, if your interpretation is correct, then are there many such cases where the government takes property via a levy and the person who wants to sue would get worried about nine months? Because obviously he'd think, I can sue under the refund thing, so it's two years. So, so are there still some where he'd have to worry about nine months? No. In other words, are, in your interpretation, does the nine-month statute become meaningless? It, it does not become meaningless because 7426 offers certain remedies that are clearly post-deprivation, such as filing for an injunction to stop the levy filing for an injunction to stop a foreclosure suit. Those are still viable under 7426 and would fall within the nine-month period. But essentially, Congress has permitted two different complementary actions to just, seek a refund. You just pointed to situations where one would expect action to be taken promptly. You don't want to wait to, to get an injunction against a levy because the government might be there uh, 
and, and levy on the property, and then you're out of luck. Where the, the incompatibility exists is post-deprivation, when the nine-month, the, the um, interest in having these claims resolved promptly is totally defeated if you can get the longer statute of limitations under the general refund statute. Justice Ginsburg, if I understand your question, you're really talking about the underlying policy of a short statute of limitations driving certain types of — That's why the code has that nine-month period instead of the two-year or, in fact, four years, because you have to go to the administrative process first. The whole purpose of the nine months is to get people to act quickly. But I, I can say to you that with, with some degree, I think, of uh, sound legal argument, that once 1346 was found to have unequivocally waived sovereign immunity for third-party refund actions in the context of a lien, it should also follow that it waives sovereign immunity for levies because there is no fundamental legal difference between the manner in which the money is extracted from the third party. There's no — the core logic of, of the decision in United States versus Williams is that money was involuntarily taken from Mrs. Uh, — from Mrs. Williams. It doesn't seem to me that the fact that there's a waiver of sovereign immunity with regard to levies answers the statute of limitations question. Sure, there's a waiver of sovereign immunity, but the question is how long does the — how promptly do you have to act? Justice Stevens, the, the issue of the statute of limitations, I believe, is dependent upon whether or not 1346 provides for remaining a viable method of seeking a refund. And my position is that if 1346 does provide that uh, in the context of a levy, then you have, in effect, two statutory schemes which coexist. One is 7426 and one is uh, uh, 1346. It is true that they overlap in the sense that there is a refund provision that could be sought under either one of them. But but 7426 is distinctly different in that it offers pre-deprivation relief that is not offered under 1346. Getting back to my early question, if this is a million-dollar tax liability and there's a levy on the bank account for $100,000, do you have to pay the extra $900,000 before you can bring the refund suit? Yes, Your Honor. So that, that's also a difference. Yes, and in this case, it wasn't a million dollars. It was $3 million. And the entire amount was paid in order to bring the refund suit. What if the amount wasn't paid? And, and what if uh, your client just sat back and uh, uh, the, 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 the assets, uh, uh, or, or let's say some real estate, were, uh, were seized by the government? Would the 1346 action still lie? Or is it only for return of money that, uh, that's been paid to satisfy the tax? 1346, in my view, would not apply to that situation, in that if property was seized uh, and used to under a tax land, if that was seized and the government proceeded to sell, then the uh, third party petitioner would have to file uh, for an injunction to stop the foreclosure sale under 7426. And that's the, it seems to me, the principal uh, 
a problem that the government was facing and, and that uh, justified the short statute, wasn't it? That is, the need to, to get to be able to convey clear title to this property that it has seized. But once, once the money's put up and what the government's taken is, uh, in, in effect, payment of the tax, uh, maybe there's no harm in, in proceeding under 1346. Justice Scalia. There is no harm in proceeding under 1346 once the money is paid, because you're dealing with a simple refund action. You're not dealing with trying to stop a foreclosure suit or stop a levy. You're dealing with a simple foreclosure action. Well, but there may be situations where the government, having levied, uh, doesn't feel the need to pursue the other remedies available to it. And if you, you then allow a challenge to the levy to come in later, the, the person they would have proceeded against, if they didn't have the levy, may have left the country, uh, may have dissipated the funds they would otherwise go after. They need to know early on that they're barking up the wrong tree if they've levied on the wrong property. And that's why you have a short statute to clear that up as soon as possible. Mr. Chief Justice, it, there is rationale for having a short statute. But once again, I point out that you have two statutory schemes which appear to be able to be harmonized and coexist together. 1346 constitutes, uh, or at least the language, is clear and unequivocal in its waiver of sovereign immunity for a, th a third party who desires to collect a tax that's been taken from that third party. And with that construction, it seems to me that only Congress can can deal with the question that you've just raised. If Congress well, wants to make it. The, the, the statute that you point to talks about bringing a civil action against the United States uh, when there has been a wrongful levy. Is that right? 7426. It doesn't say an injunctive action. And so I would, reading it, think that it encompasses both actions for injunctions, which are rare, probably, and what I think is not rare at all, an action for damages or money back. Now, your reading of the statute takes that whole ordinary case where people are just suing to get back some money. And it says our nine-month statute of limitations here is meaningless. All it applies to are injunctive actions, which I bet are rare and far between, but you could tell me I'm wrong on that. I so I won't say you've made it meaningless, but you have eviscerated it. Is that fair? Justice Breyer, it is fair, and, and it's fair for this reason, that in the Williams case, the very I mean, is my characterization fair? <laughs> You're going to say no to that. <laughs> in the Williams case, the very same argument was raised, that 7426 would be rendered meaningless if and other quiet title action and other actions would be rendered meaningless if 1346 was construed to allow Mrs. Williams to have a third-party action. Why, why would it have? Because there I think we're talking about liens, and it doesn't cover liens, the specific statute. The government contended that Mrs. Williams had remedies available to her, certainly not a levy because there was no levy. But the government was contending she could have sought relief under the Quiet Title Act, she could have sought relief by posting. And the government and the opinion points out that if she had gone the quiet title route, she would have lost the advantageous sale she was about to make. This, you could never complete a, a t quiet title suit within the time 
that she needed to execute this sale. Justice Ginsburg, I, I, I know you've, you found that in the opinion, but at the same time I'm pointing out that the government was contending that the Quiet Title Act was available to Mrs. Williams and also that she could have simply put the money up and, and put the money up and the, the land would have been released. And there was an argument over whether the secretary would uh, have the discretion to turn her down. But the point is there were other remedies out there and they were not deemed. And the, and the opinion suggests not merely suggests, determines that those other remedies, unlike 7426 in cases where it applies, were ineffective. Yes, the government raised other remedies, and the Court said they were ineffective. The other remedies, I understand, were, were determined to be not meaningful in the opinion of the Court. But I'm pointing out that that argument was raised and rejected. And it was rejected because, because 1346, as I understand it, has a life of its own, so to speak. And it was construed to be an unequivocal waiver of sovereign immunity. And I return to my original point that if that is the case, then the two statutes must coexist together. Mr. Chief Justice, if there are no further questions, I would like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Maynard. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, when Congress creates a specific remedy for a specific situation, that remedy forecloses resort to a more general remedy when that general remedy would frustrate the purposes of the specific remedy. Do you have a citation for that as we've applied it to the Internal Revenue Code? Um, yes, Your Honor. The A.S. Kreider decision that we discuss in our brief is about whether or not the shorter statute of limitations, ironically in that case for a refund suit, um, w- applied rather than the broader General Tucker Act statute of limitations. And this Court held that the specific controlled over the general because Congress was entitled to provide more specifically in a particular situation when the need called for it. Was, was the more specific statute there enacted <coughs> after the more general statute? Both of those statutes have been a long time, Your Honor. I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not totally. The reason I ask is we, 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 we do have a, a, a principle, which I think is a sound one, that uh, repeals by implication are not favored. And what you're saying is that the enactment of the more narrow statute impliedly repeals the uh, uh, the cause of action that existed uh, under 1346. You, do you know of any of your cases that you cite, even those outside of the internal revenue field, uh, involve more specific statutes enacted after the general statute that they supposedly limit? Um, I'm not sure I can answer that precise question, but the the implied repeal analysis is not the proper analysis to apply here because the the proper principle um, is that the specific remedy forecloses resort to the more general remedy when two things are true. Well, that's certainly true when the two are enacted at the same time, uh, obviously, or even when the when the uh, general is enacted after the the more specific one and and does not uh, thereby limit the, the more specific one. But um, well, in, in, in this Court's case, um, 
I, if I can answer your, your, the principle of your question, Your Honor, which is that the implied repeal doctrine is not the proper analysis here, because the specific controls the general, as this Court has held, when two things are true. One if, is — If 17 — if 7426 had not been enacted, wouldn't this case fall within 1346, as interpreted by Williams? Well, we would certainly have a more difficult argument here if that were the case, Your Honor, but Williams' specific holding was that didn't answer the question at issue here, because it only held that a, a, a person who had been subjected to a lien and voluntarily paid it under, under, under duress could be a taxpayer within the meaning of 1346. But it didn't answer the question here, which is whether or not when Congress has prov- provided specifically for parties in petitioner's situation and created a remedial scheme that will be wholly frustrated. Well, what, what could you point to in the language of 1346 that would take this case outside of 1346, as interpreted in Williams? It would, that would be a difficult argument to make, that it doesn't fall within the erroneously or illegally collected tax. But that was the same case in A.S. Crider. That was the same language in A.S. Crider, the erroneously or illegally collected tax. Yet the Court held that the more specific um, refund statute of limitations there apply. But if this case would have fallen within 1346 as interpreted by Williams, until then you must be arguing that 1346 was, in part, impliedly repealed when 7426 was enacted. One can look at it that way, Your Honor, but I think if one looks at it that way, then I think this Court's cases in Brown and and Block are how you apply the implied repeal analysis when a specific statute would be wholly frustrated by application of a more general statute. And that's particularly true where it's uncertain at the time Congress enacts the specific statute. I, I, don't, I don't see how you can say there's frustration, but perhaps I'm missing something. It seems to me that for years the Revenue Code has had two basic schemes. One is you can contest the liability before you pay the money. The other is you pay the money and sue for refund. And one requires you go to the tax court and the other to the district court and so forth. So these are two different schemes. And here you have to I, uh, we're, we're advised uh, that even if there was a levy for $100,000, uh, you, you couldn't contest it unless you paid the extra 900 I assume that's the rule. So these are two very different schemes. But am I wrong about that? Well, they are two very different schemes, Your Honor, and, 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 and one is for the situation that petitioner faces, which is a third party whose property is levied upon to collect the taxes of another, and it has its own venue provisions, its own jurisdictional provisions, its own short statute of limitations. Importantly, it has — Of course, because the government doesn't have the money. But in the refund no, no. suit, the government has the money. No, no, Your Honor. In a levy suit, the government often does have the property. The, often does, but not necessarily. It doesn't not, have to have all the amount of the tax. Not necessarily. The, 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 I think that you're on the floor requirement, which is a, a judicially, judicially interpretation on the refund statute, which requires you, a taxpayer, to pay all of its tax liability for a given year before it can bring a refund statute yeah. challenge, actually supports our argument here because it shows how complicated it would be to apply that scheme when you're talking about a party who doesn't owe the tax. We haven't, the government has not assessed the tax against the trust here. It, it believes the trust is a nominee or alter ego of the taxpayers. And it, the, the wrongful levy statute has a short statute of limitations for the precise reason that if we seize the, the property of the trust, the government needs to know promptly if the trust claims it's not the taxpayer's property. 
because the government, as the Chief Justice indicated, will cease going after the taxpayer if it believes it has already collected the tax from someone else that it believes to be holding the money for the taxpayer, which is different and crucially different than in a refund suit, as Justice Stevens alluded to, because in a refund suit where the taxpayer brings the challenge and has paid the tax, at the end of that suit, either the government has to pay the, the money back to the taxpayer in a refund, or the, or the government gets to keep the tax, and that's the end of the matter. In a third-party challenge, whether the third party brings it pre-deprivation or post-deprivation, the government's interest is knowing that the, whether or not the third party has taxpayer property or not. Because if it turns out that it's not the taxpayer's property, the government needs to pursue the taxpayer. And Congress accounted for that not only in 7426 by the short statute of limitations, but also for the express suspension of the government's period of time that it can pursue the taxpayer. The, the, um, the Section 7426 expressly suspends the time period during the running of a third-party challenge, whether that's pre- or post-deprivation. Um, in addition, the um, — if I can go back to Justice Scalia, I, I, I would like to impress upon you why we don't believe the implied repeal doctrine is applicable here. And, and there, not only is it because the specific controls — uh, the general, when it would be wholly frustrated, as it would be here, by both the statute of limitations provision and its express suspension, but but also because the um, the availability of the general remedy was uncertain at the time that Congress passed. And for the purposes of the implied repeal doctrine, that's the proper analysis. What did the 1966 Congress think it needed to say in order to make this the exclusive remedy? The state of the law at the pre, time. Pre-Williams, you're talking about. Yes, in 1966, yeah. Your Honor. The state of the law at the time when the Congress was deciding how to write this provision, um, there was certainly no authoritative pronouncement that, uh, that, the, that third parties could bring a suit. And indeed, the, the law Why does that make your argument stronger. If Congress didn't think that 1346 applied, then surely it didn't intend to repeal it. Well, th this case is say it matters what the Congress thought at the time it passed the statute in Brown and Block. But the reason it does matter as a logical matter is that th the state of the law was such that third parties couldn't bring a refund suit under 1346. The actions that had been allowed, Your Honor, were against the IRS officials, and those were expressly replaced by the statute. Congress expressly replaced them in Section 7426 D&E, which is on 12A of our of our petition. So that shows that Congress did intend to make this the exclusive remedy. The, the other reason why I think you did, can... Did, did, did you make that argument? Did the government make that argument in Williams? Did we make the argument in Williams? Yeah, that, well, that, that, that Congress had, had enacted another statute, which uh, presumes that there's no cause of action under 1346. Well, the government conceded in, in Williams that 7426 was not available to Ms. Williams there because she had only been subjected to a lien, not a levy. So the remedies the government was pointing to in that case as exclusive of the 1346 remedy were the quiet title action and in a, in a, in a discretionary Yeah, but even if, it, even if it wasn't available to her, the fact that there was another statute, the whole uh, premise for which is, is the unavailability of uh, — of uh, remedy under 1346, it seems to me that would have uh, that would have strengthened the government's case in Williams. Well, we did point to the statute, Your Honor, and suggest that the Congress had made it available. I think you know another reason why the the implied repeal doctrine is not the right analysis here is that Section 7426 did not 
withdraw any substantive rights. This, the trust here is simply trying to take advantage of another remedial provision, 1346, and rename its cause of action. They're bringing exactly the same. Their complaint is substantively identical to the complaint they brought in their first action. It looks like it's the same in the Kreider case. I can't tell. I don't know. But in the, this case was a specific statute of limitations acted after the general uh, refund statute, right? That's right, Your Honor. In the Kreider case, it seems to be a specific statute that was enacted in 1926. Uh, in the 19, I just got it out of the library. I mean, they, they give it to us, you know. Yeah. Bless you, Your Honor. And, and uh, 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 it was the 1926 code, and it concerned 1926 income. So it must have been uh, brought the suit fairly close to when that was enacted. And the general provision was a general judicial code provision having to do with general statute of limitations. And, oh, it doesn't say. It looks, I mean, it sounds as if that had been long in existence. I believe that it had been. It was a Tucker Act provision. Thank you. That would be the answer to your question, Justice Scalia. <laughs> um, but in direct response to the question you started yes. with, Justice Breyer, the Congress, the, the general statute of limitations for refund actions did already exist. In fact, we, the government believes it's significant that con- when Congress passed 7426, instead of referring to that specific provision, it placed in the same section of the code a shorter statute of limitations specifically for these actions. It created a new subsection and said 7426 actions must be brought within nine months. Um, so why was it so hard for them to say that this is an exclusive remedy, as they've done in other situations? As I indicated, Your Honor, at, at the time, there was no authoritative pronouncement. If even That's even all the more reason for them to say. I mean, if there's confusion about what remedies are available and they want it to be exclusive, it's easy enough to say that. Well, the remedies that have been allowed by the courts, Your Honor, and, and we believe in the absence of any appropriate waiver of sovereign immunity, but the, 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 the actions that had been allowed had been allowed against the IRS officials, and Congress did expressly replace those in, in the, on 12A um, in 7426D. No action may be maintained against any officer or employee of the United States. Well, again, that suggests that they know how to spell out exclusivity when they have it in mind, and they didn't do it with respect to the availability of an action under 1346. That's true, Your Honor. But I I think for purposes of trying to discern the intent of the 1966 Congress, one has to look at the state of the law in 1966. And there was no reason to believe, and certainly no authoritative pronouncement at the time, that, that 1346 covered this type of action. And, and I don't think so. Will, the Williams decision came like a bolt out of the blue then? Um, well, that's probably how the government views it, Your Honor. But <laughs> certainly, you, I don't think one should ascribe for purposes of implied repeal. In other words, to assume a presumption um, by making the Congress prescient of what this court was going to decide in 1995. And I certainly wouldn't concede, although. Uh, the petitioner would like to argue that Williams's holding is as broad as it is. Williams was about a very particular situation, a woman, as I said, who had a lien placed on her, and the court didn't answer this question of whether someone who had, had a, as Justice Ginsburg indicated, who had a levy placed on there could be a taxpayer within the meaning of 1346, as this court held in, in Williams. Um, Justice Kinney, also on your question about the tax code, although we don't cite it in our brief, a state of Romani is another case in which this court had, in, in fact, it held that a specific provision in the tax code, in fact, in this very Tax Lien Act, took priority over a more 
general provision that having to do with the priority of the United States' uh, claims, and that's the uh, State of Romani 523, U.S. 517. Um, I believe if there are no further questions, the government would ask the Court to find that 7426 is the — except I have one more thing to add. Getting lots of help Mr. Hungar from has all quarters. <laughs> I beg your pardon? Really, Mr. Hungar has a further question. <laughs> he wants me to point out to the court that in addition to <laughs> um, — it's always nice to have help. In addition to the great American federal savings and loan case, uh, Justice Scalia, which indicated that the implied repeal analysis is, is not appropriate when you're talking about a, a subsequent re, simply remedial provision that doesn't withdraw substance rights, the court, in a case uh, authored, I believe, by Your Honor, Rancho Palos Verdes, in footnote two, made that same point last term. I forgot about that footnote. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Hunger might, might have questioned your memory. <laughs> if there are no further questions, we would ask that the court affirm. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Ainsley, you have five minutes remaining. The government argues that A.S. Creter, uh, has relevance to this case, and, and I will submit to the Court that it does not. The analysis in A.S. Creter about a more specific statute following a general statute controlling was based upon the peculiar syntax of the statute in question. The analysis in A.S. Creter was that the more general statute uh, was phrased in the negative, and that, uh, therefore, all it did was set an outside time limit that Congress was free to shorten with a subsequent statute. We do not have that situation in this case. Uh, there was — there's no similar analysis that you can apply to 1346 and 7426. And, and both statutes in Creter, I take it, applied to the refund suit? Yes. Yes. There were two statutes. Two statutes bearing on the same remedy. Two statutes bearing on the same remedy. And I, I submit that the A.S. Creter analysis is not relevant here. The government also relies on Brown versus the General Services Administration for the proposition that um, a, a very detailed, uh, complete, balanced, structured statute will control over a more general statute. And the argument is, of course, that 7426 is that type of statute. But the problem is, in the Brown case, we were dealing, the Court was dealing with the Civil Rights Act, and the Civil Rights Act was clearly the first piece of legislation that had been enacted by Congress to remedy federal employment discrimination. It was a, a brand new remedy. In the case before the Court today, uh, 7426 was a response to a particular issue that uh, was raised in 1966, and that was that Claimants who desired to seek uh, redress from the government when their property was taken were suing the director. They were suing the tax collector. This was just uh, a statute to give them a remedy directly against the government. It wasn't creating a brand new, a brand new situation. It was clarifying that now you could sue the government directly as opposed to the tax collector. And in fact, uh, the Federal Tax Land Act prohibited suits against government officials, as was previously the practice in the United States. And so it's, it's, it's this issue of implied repeal with a, with a shorter statute I don't believe is apropos to the, to the situation that confronts us here. And I would like to also 
simply conclude my argument with regards to the government's uh, contention that the government needs to know. In this particular case, the tax years in question were 1981 through 1984. The government did not assess the taxpayer until 1993 and 1994, 12 years after the first tax year. The government did not levy until 1999, which was 18 years after the first tax year. During this time, the government knew, very clearly knew what the situation was in this case, and for whatever reason did not take prompt action. Therefore, uh, on behalf of the petitioner, I ask that you reverse, send this case back to the district court for proceedings under the refund statute. Thank you, Mr. Ainsa. Uh, the case is submitted.